Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the first annual Oscar nomination deep dive with the pop culture Persephone. Very excited to jump in today. This is one of three. Yes, there will be three episodes released this week. I can't release them in the following weeks because the Oscars are this Sunday, y'all. They are this Sunday. So they're going to all be released today. Not today. They're all going to be released this week, um, beginning today. And um, so you can get an indication of what's being nominated, who to look for, some of my predictions, and some of the predictions of my guest and classic movie wizard, Tim Collinwood, first time guest to the show today. So this is going to be a long few episodes, but lots of information, lots of fun. And stay tuned at the end of this first episode for the Ask Persephone segment, which is focusing on concept albums. So we're going to be doing a real crazy detour at the end of this episode into the Ask Persephone. So we're just keeping it, you know, fresh and new and fun. So let's get all glitzed up and glammed and get ready for the Oscars without further ado. Hello, Tim Collinwood. Hello. Welcome. Tim is here, as I said, right before he came on to join me for the first annual Pop Culture Persephone Oscar Preview and Prediction Show. Uh, We're going to insert the yelling and the hooting. Um, You all might also recognize Tim's voice or the name Tim because he provided us with a When I say us, I mean me, Um, with a wonderful question in the Ask Persephone feature a few weeks ago in regards to Miss Glenn Close and if this was her year to be winning the Oscar. As she has been lauded many times in in the Oscars, but she has not gotten the golden statue yet. So, Tim, how are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. You know, like for for a Wednesday in a in a mostly okay, like non super stressful week, it, like it's fine. Um, you know, now that people are getting vaccinated and I can actually see them, and I'm one dose away from human contact, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> so. Oh, so wet. that's beautiful. I'm a little older than you, Tim. So I, I have had the second dose um, just uh, recently. Um, I was down for the count for about a day and a half, but I'm feeling great and feeling hopeful and renewed and can't wait to hug people. Yeah, I, I, yeah, before I get my second dose on the 26th, I need to um, run to Drug Mart and get the Pedialyte and I'm every, I'm okay with everything else than that, but I'm just thinking to myself, well, be prepared. It's better to it is to, to not be. And besides, you have to use your unused stage manager energy somewhere. <laughs> so. Yeah. so speaking, so t- 
Tim, why don't you tell my popster audience how you and I first met? Okay, well, um, it was, it was, <laughs> I was going to say it was ages ago before the pandemic ever started. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I was coming from uh, a theater event, like possibly Pandemonium yes. at Cleveland Public Theater. And a bunch of, I still had energy about me, which the, old, the older I get, the more I don't, that's always a question mark. And I'm only 33, but like, <laughs> um, Babe. and uh, we, uh, a bunch of us went to Tina's and I remember a bunch of people came in from what looked like another fundraiser. And I, you know, uh, our mutual friend, Devin Turchin, um, I recognized him. Frequent guest on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, and oh my god, if hearing his voice again, especially now, is just so fucking comforting. <laughs> like, so, like, yeah, so like, what, what? <laughs> love you, Devin. I'm hope I, I can't wait to hear you listen to all this. <laughs> um, but yeah, and basically, like, Devin, I believe introduced us, and uh, I was. I was just, I think we, some, it came to talk about classic Hollywood oh. and, you know, me, that just gets me started. Like, <laughs> like, yes, like, maybe. Yeah. And I think we had like this on, we had this wonderful conversation about Olivia de Havilland and oh. Joan Fontaine and, <laughs> And like, and it was just so great. And me, I'm just, and me, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, I like, I don't know why it's like one o'clock in the friggin' morning. I've been working all day <laughs> and I have this new energy about me and it's like, and we just talked and talked and talked. And I think you said something about how I need to come over and we need to watch Gone with the Wind or something. Yes. And I yeah. Everything yeah. Was especially Gone with the Wind. Um, yeah. I mean, it was for me, it was so wonderful because all my friends know that I love pop culture and they know and they know that I love movies, but mm -hmm. I really, really love old movies, classic Hollywood movies. You've never been to my home, but it's the yeah. first when you go, my, my house is upside down, as some people understand. They call it the Pee Wee Playhouse. So <laughs> my room is upstairs and I have an entire wall of um of classic Hollywood black and white photographs. Oh, um, nice. Uh, mostly mostly leading ladies and supporting ladies and um and some little known stars. Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't really get as much recognition, some supporting characters. So that is one room. And I have I have different icons throughout the throughout the home. Um, in fact, I have Josephine Baker. She's in my bar wow. in my room. In That's my the bar best place for her. <laughs> my bar is called Josephine's after her. It's a beautiful photograph of her. Um, and I've always felt, I don't know what it is, something about the pandemic as well. I mean, we're speaking about movies that were, you know, released this year and nominated this year, but there is something incredibly comforting for me to go back and watch mm -hmm. some of the old films 
and these actors, their mannerisms, the transatlantic accent. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Which I can't get enough of. Um, all of that, it's just, it's just truly magic to me. I know that those times were also, you know, riddled with many problems. <laughs> oh, definitely. But the one thing I like about old movies and that I, I can honestly say, even amid, you know, my, my on-brand wokeness is that, you know, they really were, there's lots of survival stories in there. Like I'm thinking about like how for the entirety of the thirties, everything was just about survival. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I watched 42nd street the other day and, and it, what really stuck out to me, not, not only the fact that it was like one of the first Busby Berkeley Hollywood movies and, uh, and it was a pre-code musical at that, but the fact that everything was about survival, like <laughs> the director was literally backstage holding on to the leading lady. And he's like saying, the entire show is running on you. And, <laughs> and, and me, I'm just thinking to myself, well, isn't that going to be Broadway 2021, <laughs> 2022 and 2023? <laughs> like, <laughs> And I also think there's, you know, especially um, when you have these old movies that are movies about putting on a show, movies that are about Broadway or movies. Yeah. And classic ones. There's something about folks like us who um, act and who have worked backstage mm -hmm. in theater on stage that you watch that and you're like, oh, I've been there. Yeah. All on my shoulders. It's all hinging on me. I get you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and like one of my favorite, well, okay, so little backstory. So I do theater because of classic movies. The first movie I saw that was that was not from my decade was Funny Girl. And I was like, I can do that. <laughs> oh gorgeous. But yeah, it's yeah. exactly hello gorgeous. <laughs> Like Barbara, as I live and breathe, is one is was like the inciting incident to my theatrical pursuits. And then my favorite actor, living or dead, is Catherine Hepburn, who, as oh. you know, thrived on the transatlantic accent because she had the transatlantic accent, um, or as I like to call New England Bohemian, you know. <laughs> so, so actresses such as. Catherine Hepburn, their personal life, in my opinion, mm -hmm. rivaled anything they ever did on stage. Oh, tell me Her about it. I mean, and, and you know, it's really interesting too. Like you mentioned that, and I know you were mentioning like not really well known, it's like Josephine Baker. Like, here's the thing. Like, I know we talked about survival being a a, a feature subject matter for the '30s and '40s, but like. No one knew survival than Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly oh. McQueen and Josephine Baker. Like we might have vestiges of the toxic societies that barely gave them anything to work with and they still managed to make it work. But like all those people I mentioned just now were innovators. They pushed and even though we only have vestiges of them on screen, you know, I, I like to think it might be better for us to remember their lives when we see them and not just 
their performances. Oh, I agree. I mean, you think about the reality of Patty Yeah. Sorry. That that's my uh I'm making lasagna and oh. that's one of my timers. <laughs> the meatballs are done. Uh, <laughs> no, I swear I, I'm on this little semi Doris Day kick. I'm just cooking for everybody now. Uh oh, I well, I love it. I'll, yeah. I'll be cooking for everybody once this pandemic is over, too. But, like, yeah. Oh, they turn out wonderful. Okay, I'm sorry. But what I was saying, oh, yeah, like. I mean, Hattie McDaniel won Best Supporting Actress in 1939 at the Academy Awards. But um, for her, you know, for her performance as as Mammy and Gone with the Wind. Yeah, but she also was um, one of the founders of what was then called the Negro Actors Guild, which That's sought what? to um, which sought to uh, have better representation in mainstream films of black uh, black actors, get health care, and um, get travel accommodations um, in the industry. So that. That that guild was was founded around Gone with the Wind's premiere, and because the Academy was known to be anti-union, I not to say that she didn't deserve her honor, but I kind of have to think, given the studio execs hating any form of labor whatsoever, that they probably <laughs> gave it to her to say, "Okay, well, can you shut up now? We need to like <laughs> continue." Well, I mean, I. I Definitely, I'm sure that had some things to do with it, but the the reality of the time was, yeah, you absolutely, you saw her um, accepting her award on that telecast. You can go and YouTube it. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful moment. Yeah. Uh, as she's the first Black woman to win a supporting actress award. Yep. The reality, though, she was not allowed to sit in the audience. Yep. Main floor with the other nominees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because she was a black woman. Yeah. And I'm sorry, y'all, 1939 wasn't that long ago. Nope. I mean, is absolutely both simultaneously mind blowing and not surprising at all. Yeah. I mean, we're literally, and I hate saying this because it'll age us both, but like, we're literally like, 16 years from Gone with the Wind being 100. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I kind of want to not see a supporting actress um, contingency for recognizing Black talent in the Academy as much, even if the industry still goes that route for leading performances. You right. know, um, but I guess that kind of brings us to the Oscars of today. <laughs> um, exactly. But like, so, and we're gonna get to this. We're gonna get to this very soon. But yeah. Um, but but um, yeah. So classic movies are why I'm in. Uh, why I'm a thespian, and uh, I will, and I would love to, and like watching. Um, watching over what I like what I have about like 50 movies over time like I have a big ass DVD collection the oldest movie I have is from 1931 and the most recent movie I have is from 2018 so <laughs> that's great 
What's the oldest movie you have from 1931? Uh, it's called uh, The Purchase Price. It's with Barbara Stanwyck and George Brent. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck plays a mail order bride and George Brent is a farmer. And it's like, you know, it, it's, it's a pre-code, so it's fun. <laughs> um, and, you know, Barbara Stanwyck, she was just literal fire everywhere she went. So, like, oh. yeah. You entering with her shoulders, which I loved about her. Um, yeah. You know, Although, I mean, not her shoulders were not as strong as Crawford's would become. But, oh, Stanwyck, absolutely. Yeah, one of my favorite performances of her, well, my, pre my favorite pre-code performance of her was Babyface. But one of my absolutely favorite performances of her was actually from a TV miniseries, uh, The Thornbirds, as Mary Carson, next to Richard Chamberlain, and giving that wonderful speech about, like, I'm not old. I may be old, but I'm still a woman, and I have sexual needs. Like... <laughs> Okay, so anybody out there, if you've never heard of the Thornbirds, it is a classic 80, early 80s miniseries mm -hmm. about a horrid love affair mm -hmm. between a young woman and a priest. And it was a scandalo when it came Oh, out. definitely. And it was a sensation. Yeah, when, when I, I was did. still Catholic, I, I, that would be my, my holy, that would be my Holy Week movie watching. <laughs> I'd be like, oh my gosh, it's Holy Thursday. Time to pop in the first, the first episode. On that note, on that note, we are going to now move into the today. Um, we're gonna we're gonna take a little break, and at this break, you're going to hear some clips from some of the best. Movies nominated this year. Date of birth? Friday, 31st of December, 1937. You're living with your daughter at the moment? Yes, until she goes to live in Paris. No, Dad, why do you keep going on about Paris? She told me. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Anne, you told me the other day. Have you forgotten? She's forgotten. <laughs> Paris. They don't even speak English there. America's on fire right now. Until that fire is extinguished. Nothing else means a damn thing. Imagine what we could accomplish together. We can heal this whole city. You ain't telling me. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can. Especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction. Eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. To be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. I don't like Grandma. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. I think Fern's part of an American tradition. My dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life 
just remembering. All right, we are back. And those were some clips from the following Best Picture nominations in this order. The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, and Nomad Land. So, first and foremost, a few things that um, have, again, and this is something that drives me absolutely batty and crazy, because we'll be talking about the best directors as well. It used to be that if a best picture was nominated, it was automatically the, a best director. That best director was nominated as well. That is no longer the case. Um, I don't know why or how that can be, but it drives me absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but what is interesting about, about some of these nominations are we have about, we have three movies. Um, wait, we have one, two. We have four movies that are based off of real life situations. And we have one that is based off of a play, mm -hmm. um, which they do love. Um, sometimes it's more successful than other times when they transfer the plays into movies. Mm -hmm. I really did enjoy The Father. Um, I don't know if you, did you have the opportunity to see The Father at all? I saw the trailer. Yes. And it, it I, I mean, it, it looked, I mean, I love Anthony Hopkins and, you know, from Lion Winter on, but like, and it's not to say that it's not a, a it didn't, it's not that to say that it doesn't look interesting. It does. Um, I was just wondering, like, I, for me, I'm just thinking, well, like I'd have to see it. So whatever I say isn't fair, but like, if it's compelling to hold your attention at all and especially these days, like, then it's worth watching. And you, ha and you just have, you know, previously minted Olivia Coleman, probably doing her, her, her due diligence to highlight the talent of a legend like Anthony Hopkins, um, you know, off that, I mean, it, to me, that's, to me, that's just like, well, yeah, of course the Academy would, would think that that'd be a great picture because, you know, that, that's a great pair. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so and the interesting thing, and I do a disservice because I have never, I have not seen the play that this is based on. Um, Neither have I, unfortunately. <laughs> but I did I did read up on on the father and and how they did this, and I think they utilize some of these elements in the play. Um, but I think they're able to do it very effectively in a movie. This is this is a movie about. Um, Anthony Hopkins, who plays the father of Olivia Coleman, and he is he is departing into dementia. Mm -hmm. And it's struggle between, you know, he obviously has moments of lucidity and he pulls from all of his Anthony Hopkins um great bag of tricks. And I mean that with all, all due respect. Yeah, he, he's a beautiful ball of energy that's just waiting to be used and tapped. 
and it's it's a really it really is a great performance at first i was like is this gonna be like just a performance they're nominating him for because he's older and he's anthony hopkins but it is um it's a well fleshed out performance it's hard to watch mm-hmm. many times if you've ever had anyone in your family dealing with Alzheimer's or dementia, mm-hmm. um, it's painful because he he is feeling um, mm-hmm. he's suffocated. He's feeling attacked at many times, and many times you're seeing things. He's an unreliable narrator, right? Mm-hmm. So you see other people popping up that aren't really there. Yeah, I mean, um, I've I've had relatives who suffer who suffered from dementia and Alzheimer's. And, you know, the last Academy movie I've seen that had anything to do with that was um, Still Alice with Julianne oh. Moore. And, like, Art. honestly, it's, maybe the reason why I haven't seen The Father yet was because the last, when I read the book of Still Alice and I watched the movie, I was popping blueberries like pills because they do two things. They do... They maintain your retention and your complexion. And I was like, please ward off what might eventually be coming down my way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, and that's harrowing because about Alice, um, she, she um, has early onset Alzheimer's um, in her mid-40s in that film. Yep. And, you know, this this man is older, but he's fiercely independent. Olivia Coleman's performance, and we'll get to this later when we talk about her as she's she is nominated for Best Actress, um, is a lot more understated than you. I thought she was Best Supporting. Oh, was she Best Supporting? Apologies. No, that's okay. You're, she's Best Supporting. Um, she's a lot more understated. She, you know, you're used to her in both. Um, really pretty big performances even in the crown but like i'm thinking of the favorite and i'm thinking about some of her comedies that she's done for bbc like peep show and bag she's these big colorful characters and um kind of slowly you know she's subtly and quietly suffering yeah i mean it i'll like it's really hard to be a caretaker of someone who has Alzheimer's. And that's not to say that they're not doing their best out of love and care and concern and all that other stuff. It's just that it really wears on you that uh, this person is gradually slipping away and I can't do anything about it except be there. And I feel like nowadays there's more, there, there may or may not be more of a, uh, an understanding of, of actually like, I saw a meme once about how next time you're with someone with dementia and they're recalling a previous time in their life to actually meet them at the time they're in and talk to them in their time. Right. Oh. And, and, and I'm just thinking, whoa, first of all, do I have the mental strength to do that? And second of all, how would I know what time they're in unless they tell me something? So, I mean, it, it, it Again, like the fact that it's it's the drama of caregiving, which I think is a very important theme to explore this year, um, especially is is I, I look forward to watching that film basically 
when I'm able to watch it. So it's good. I don't think it's going to take it. I don't think it's going to take best movie. No, I think Nomadland is probably a shoe in. I think I tend to agree with you. And um, speaking of Nomadland, we're going to go right to that. Um, I um, was very moved by this by this film. Yeah. Um, and I'm expecting to be. Um, it's also directed by Chloe Zhao. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful. And she's also nominated Chloe Zhao for Best Director. We have two females nominated for Best Director this year. Yeah, it only took 94 years. That's right. That's right. And uh, Chloe Zhao is um, also the first Asian female director nominated. Mm-hmm. So um, it is nice to see some marginalized folks being nominated as well. Um, long time coming on that. Um, yeah. Nomadland is um, the type of movie that the Academy loves. Mm-hmm. It's about America. It's sweeping. It's moving. It's storytelling. Um, at the heart of it, you have the amazing Frances McDormand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, give it, give them best picture right there because of Francis. Oh, definitely. And you know, she's never in any of the films she was previously nominated in, never received a best picture. So even if she doesn't walk away with best actress, give Francis a best picture. I mean, for God's sakes, her 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 husband and her brother in law got their Oscar before she did. Even though she did get the, she was the first of the Cohen collection to get an Oscar for Fargo. Right. Like, I think Frances just needs her own independent best picture. Like she almost, she came very close with three billboard, three billboards. Yeah. But like, I think she just like, I will say this in the nicest way I can possible. <laughs> just give Frances a best picture and will forgive the best actress <laughs> <laughs> right I, I i get i get what you're i get what you're meaning and the 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 interesting thing about nomad land is that there are many um many of the actors in it are not actors mm-hmm. <laughs> um based on tr- there are true life people who are nomads mm-hmm. going you know Playing by different names, mm-hmm. but a lot of these stories or the or their stories, you know, it's based on a true story mm-hmm. of that, you know, to decide to live this van life, this kind of this caravan life, kind of this life, mm-hmm. um, in response to you know a lot of the things with the economy, and you hear these stories throughout. It feels almost like a documentary at times mm-hmm. watching it. Yeah, I, I, I saw the trailer for that and I'm just thinking, this is only two and a half minutes and I want to see the whole thing. Why don't it's, I have HBO Max? <laughs> actually, it's on it's on Hulu now. Okay. Uh, it, it's on Hulu. It was made by Amazon. Um, okay. I believe it was an Amazon film, but it's now available on Hulu and it's, you know, Frances and she loves this, you know, Frances is not about the glamorous roles. No. Frances is, Frances is, uh, you know, 
I not that she's a gorgeous woman. She really is. Yeah, Francis um, has talent. She doesn't need to glam up or glam down. She's just raw talent. And this is just a kind of it's somebody was like it's a survival story, and I'm like it's a living. It's not surviving. They're they're living. They are surviving. She's finding a new way to kind of exist. Mm -hmm. Truly living her life unencumbered with, you know, they don't have houses. You know, mm -hmm. they, this is a whole community. They have, they commute, you know, they, they, they share things. They cook dinners together. Mm -hmm. it, it's really, mo really moving and pretty uplifting and watching her journey and watch people that she, who are not from that life worried about. Mm -hmm. like you can live with us you know we we heard you know you just because at the beginning of the story she's left she's left her hometown um her husband had died and the plant the i believe is the steel plant that she had worked she was working at as well as her husband mm -hmm. um it closed down mm -hmm. and she makes a decision to sell a lot of her belongings and kind of take jobs where she can get them. Mm -hmm. And she takes some jobs and she travels. And she meets this um, really interesting group of people that color her life mm -hmm. uh, in ways that I don't think she's expecting. Um, and it's, I don't, I think it's, I think it's a truly moving moving uh movie i i think that my prediction is no man land is getting it yeah um yeah i i could be wrong i've been wrong many times um the reason why i do not believe minari is getting it which is also based on a true story mm -hmm. is because parasite got it last year and i do not think they're going to give two years in a row a um story that is not in english well but as but here's the thing like minari is minari is an american film it was made in america it has korean in it but it's a bilingual film so true so i i think though just your your your, your prediction about the trend of it all is definitely important so maybe that might be another that might be another uh, category of recognition like a, a, a theater friend of mine who teaches theater at Oberlin um, said like uh, a couple years ago, like I, he said I about the 2019 Oscars, he was like, I just feel like this was like a participation trophy type of award show where everyone who made a movie got something. And I'm just thinking, really? and, and me, I'm just thinking, well, could this, I mean, not trying to downplay any of the, need for deserved industry recognition here, but like, is this year because of the pandemic possibly gonna also read like that? Because you made a movie and people saw it. So here you go. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, and I don't have stats in front of me. I'm sure, I'm sure much less, you know, fewer movies were made. Mm -hmm. um, I could be right, I could be wrong on that. Um, but I do, I do believe the movies that have been nominated are some, 
really fantastic. Oh movie. yeah, I'm not trying to downplay the movies. I'm just saying that like the circumstances that impacted the economy of the industry might suggest um, not. It's not like a charity suggestion, but it just it might suggest extra generosity. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I got you. And you know the way that we were able to see some of these movies or not see some of these movies is impacting many things as well. So mm -hmm. it always comes down to the fact that um, even before like a pandemic year, oftentimes, you know, movies are nominated that, that have just hit the theaters or they're, they're only limited run in some independent theaters. And because of, what we saw this year because of the pandemic mm -hmm. was the first time ever you could get movies directly, like first run movies directly from your home. You're going to be paying $20, mm -hmm. you know, for a first run movie. But we also had movies such as Nomadland, such as Mank, mm -hmm. um, such as Judas and the Black Messiah yeah. that were delivered directly to Amazon Prime and Netflix and HBO Max. So if you if you had those services where there was an increase in people getting those those subscriptions mm -hmm. over this pandemic because people were you know, it was the salve for the wounds. They're like I got to watch mm -hmm. something. I'll, maybe maybe now is the time since I have no social life that I get a Hulu Plus subscription or I get a HBO Max and I full transparency I have a lot of these subscriptions. Mm -hmm. I kind of have to having a pop culture podcast. Yeah, of course. But, but yeah. But for me it was wonderful because I was able to see a lot of these almost easier for me and mm -hmm. <laughs> now I know that's not the case for everyone. Well, and, yeah, and and like and I love streaming. I mean, I currently piggyback off of a friend's Netflix. And I mean, I, I to me, it's like, well, you know, I, I love I love an industry, an economy of options. You know, I can pop in a DVD. I could if I had cable, I could watch something on TCM or I can do Netflix. It doesn't have to be one. It can be everything, you know, Um and I guess, I mean, I guess that's what I love about the freedom in which to watch a movie today, you know, and honestly, I will probably be gunning for the movie theater once it be, you know, it's safe to completely gun to the theater again, <laughs> but like, and I yeah. do know the movie I intend to see in that theater, especially, and possibly see again. Um, but like, yeah, it, it's... This is going to be the second, I believe, like, I don't want to say it, the second Netflix Oscars. It should just, but it's the first streaming Oscars. Let's just put it that way. It's the first direct-to-TV and direct-streaming Oscars. Pretty much, yeah. It really, really is. Um, and to, to think back just a couple years ago with how, how angry Martin Scorsese was about Mudbound. I don't know if you remember that, but a few years ago, and this was right when Netflix started doing this, it was very controversial. They made Mudbound, which it was one of the first Netflix 
big budget mm-hmm. movies. Um, and it was great. Carrie Mulligan, Mary J. Blige, great ensemble cast. And it was nominated for quite a mm-hmm. lot of things. And Scorsese was pissed. He was very pissed about mm-hmm. it. This is this this should not be able to be nominated because it was not released in a movie theater, you know, because he's of the old guard. Now, of course, he came out a year with later. The Irishman. With the Irishman. So um I yeah. guess he can't find that anymore. Yeah, I wonder um, who guilt tripped him into considering that option, considering um considering his box office numbers of the past few films he's made, you know. Right. And I was one of these people that, by the way, and I am a fan of Scorsese, but I was not in love with the Irishman. I, I haven't seen um, the Irishman, to be honest, like because it, it's still a commitment to watch a two to three hour movie. And while well, Netflix gives you the artistic freedom to make whatever you want, like it doesn't mean that I want to sit down and, and watch a bunch of and I hate saying this, but it's true, a bunch of Scorsese standbys as Irish as Irish people <laughs> tell a story called the Irish. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's part of his mobster trope. Yeah. I mean, yeah, um, I know for a fact that my father was extremely excited about it. It's his generation. He loves those movies. And don't get me wrong. I love some Martin Scorsese movies. Oh, I do, too. do I love, I do not love, I do not think he knows how to write for women at all. Um, yeah. I feel like it's, it's, it's abusive, frankly. Um, even though there's been iconic roles that people have been, oh, yeah, but what about so-and-so nominated for this? And Well, it's like after Ellen know. Burstyn, he really stopped paying attention and just made women secondary, you know, and expository. Well, they, yeah, they were, so that that's more yeah. on him than the women. I mean, oh yeah, it's nothing towards the women. And of course, if you're 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 not as an actress, you're not going to turn down an opportunity to be in a Martin Scorsese movie. But I mean, I think of the Wolf of Wall Street. I think of Margot Robbie, mm-hmm. and I was like, what did that character really get to do? Yeah. What did we really about well, that character? Yeah, it just I seems mean, like Martin Scorsese's, like even like his classics, like Goodfellas. Like I, I want to say that maybe Lorraine Bracco was severely underused, and she's and and she was, and she's amazing, and she's hilarious, and she, there's even there's a she has a whole portion of the movie where she has like her her monologue her her pov which is mm-hmm. great but to me it's not enough it is henry hill's story so it's not going to be um and it is it made her it truly did make her but i mean and she says that in her autobiography which of course it's called lorraine Bracco on the couch it's amazing i recommend one I recommend listening to the audiobook where she talks because it's the Lorraine Bracco voice in your ear, believe it or not. It's kind of soothing. And you and she just the way she describes her relationships 
and it, she she she's lived a very mm -hmm. storied life. But, you know, she was kind of pigeonholed after that as Italian mafia. You know, anything mob related. Yeah. I mean, she. I mean, Dr. Melfi on The Sopranos, which was, you know, mob. She wasn't in the mob. It was mob adjacent as the therapist. Yeah. Well, but, but still, like, typecasting sucks, especially if you're a woman in Hollywood today. Because, oh like, unless you can find a way to fight type and that can be your, um, that can be your, your type or your, you know, your, your uh, marketable image, you know, like that's still um like yeah that's still it's still a challenge and you know you, you kind of have to wonder like i mean it's great lorraine brocco still gets work today but at the same time it's just like how it's a question of who's advocating like right she doesn't get a lot no. of work today and i mean it's a i mean she really she she really doesn't um and that's some ageism. That's, you know, we still only have a few actors of her age that are getting yeah. those jobs. Yeah. I think, I think maybe Lorraine but, Bracco needs an inclusion writer like Francis told everyone to do after she won her second Oscar. Like, absolutely. But, but everybody, I'm telling you, On the Couch by Lorraine Bracco, audiobook, you will not, you will thank me. Okay. Um, so Minari is up there, and I will I will say this: I was not able to watch Minari. I, I've read a lot about it. I know it's based on a true story. Um, it has Stephen Young in it, who is who was Glenn from The Walking Dead, who I absolutely loved when I watched The Walking Dead. He was my favorite character, and it was. To me, that's the exciting part of him being in this movie. Um, I so I'm very much thrilled mm -hmm. for him. But the Academy likes movies like this. They like movies where you have, you know, there's a young boy and you're seeing a lot of things through his perspective. Mm -hmm. I, you know, they like that type of movie. I don't think it's gonna get it, um, but I do think some. I, I think it's gonna get recognized in other ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, I. I, I... It's great, like, it's great that after a year of just basic accountability and better authentic representation that this crop of Oscar nominees is is very promising. Um, and even as a white person, I hate saying that it might, it might look a little bit overcompensate, a little bit like over, overcompensation, but at the same time, these are all amazing looking films and like i can't wait to watch minari and on um on youtube because i found it there and i can rent it for probably a good decent dollar or two so i'm excited i mean they're they're it, it looks like very beautiful um against the odds you know family trying to mm -hmm. make it work yeah um, moving which and I am I'm thrilled about Stephen Young. So it's kind of like Nomadland with Francis McDormand. It's like oh, I would just love to see him recognized. But he is recognized in a different mm -hmm. category. So now before we get excited about 
<laughs> how diverse this is. Uh, one of the favorite types of movies to be nominated is a movie about movies with um and it's directed by David Fincher um, and it's a make and it the untold story of really how came came to be which don't get me wrong I love a citizen King story and I enjoyed mm -hmm. this movie um because I have I have been pretty obsessed over the years with Orson Welles in general, even though Orson Welles is not the central focus on this, which I enjoyed mm -hmm. that as well. Uh, knowing that, knowing that the puppeteer, not the puppeteer, but the, um, the person like with some of the machinations behind this wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. with someone else. It was something I didn't know. And it's a beautifully shot movie that goes back and forth. You know, it you go back and forth in time. Um, and the Academy loves these types of movies that really celebrate old Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I watched you know, Mank the other the other day, and to be honest, <laughs> I didn't really like it as much as I thought I might have. Um, like, Carrie Oldman is great. Amanda Seyfried is, is great. I, it just felt, I mean, I really loved the cinematography. I really loved how they captured the style of an old movie. Um, I, I just like wish, I just <laughs> wish that it went somewhere. Like, I'm sorry to be harsh, but yeah. like, all I got was character, character, character meets character, character, character meets character, character, character. Like I thought, I, and like, yeah, I mean, I was, it just felt like, okay. So I, I was wondering where the conflict was. I couldn't get a sense of the conflict outside of everyone on Mank's ass for writing the script already. And that was the, <laughs> well, and, and and even then too, like even all the flashbacks and the insights, like it just it, it just felt. I mean, I've seen black and white movie like Sis and Kane had had better defined story arc than that. <laughs> I thought. Well, it's well, Citizen yeah, Kane. but it, if I you're mean... doing a movie about Citizen Kane, shouldn't your writing match that? <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't have the force. There, there was a movie made, um, and I wish I remembered the name of it. I think it was made for HBO and Liv, Liv I never say the name mm -hmm. right, Leap Shriver, played Orson Welles, and it was essentially like the making of Citizen Kane through that perspective. Okay. Um, all of the challenges that well came up against, you know, I found that that was a lot more fascinating mm -hmm. to me than it was. It was kind of like Fincher found this. Oh, well, we don't know about this guy in this story that has been told many times that so we're going to mm -hmm. examine. I mean, I think they love Gary Oldman. I love Gary Oldman. I don't think it's enough for them to win Best Picture. 
I think the big sensation out of this has not been Gary Oldman. It was probably Amanda Seyfried. Seyfried. No one uh, well, and do that. Seyfried. When we get to that category, I'll go a little bit more in depth. But I do. I have thoughts about Amanda's performance. Um, but I don't. I and I don't think it's amazing. This is another thing. I don't think it's amazing, but I think it's whenever you have an actress who hasn't done that many amazing things, frankly, and then they do something like this that it already becomes an Oscar mm -hmm. darling, oh, blow it up more. Yeah, do you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, it, it's when you go, when someone goes against type, it's always interesting to watch them go against type. Because like, Correct. I remember Amanda Seyfried from, well, from Mamma Mia and, and from, yes. uh, from Les Mis. And from Mean Girls, so she was. Well, Mean Girls is her best performance. Yeah, well, I don't care. And, and also, like, so yeah, of course, I'm excited to see a jump from you know Karen to <laughs> Marion Davies. Um, she also did a she also did a lesbian thriller with Julianne Moore called Chloe. Uh, no, but I will that? definitely check it out. Just. To it's not horrible, but it's not great. It's kind of sexy. Well, I, um, yeah. you, want it, you want it to be more thrilling and more sexy. But, well, and, you know, it's hard to break out of type. How long was Sally Field thought of the Flying Nun before she delivered in Norma Ray? Like, right. Oh yeah, she lot. had to do Sybil. <laughs> I mean, Sybil. I mean, they were still calling her flying nun after Sybil. I'm like, how many personalities does this poor woman have to play? How many? It's part of the, I think that's more a matter of how many personalities have to be believed that she's capable of playing. Because right. she can, del I mean, Sally Field's memoir was one of those life-changing memoirs that you, as soon as you read a chapter, you're just thinking, I need to recover for a week and then I'll get back to the next one. So... You know, I bought it for my mother, but I have oh, not read it yet. And I just have the wine on hand, okay? Oh God! I mean, I love I, mean, her. I love her too. That's I, why I I'm saying, her. have the wine on hand. You might need it. <laughs> so the last one nominated um, is Judas and the Black Messiah, um, directed by Shaka King. And what is What's fascinating about this year is we have two movies. Now, mind you, um, Trial of the Chicago 7 um, is not nominated as a best movie. Um, but there are actors, they are recognized within some of the awards. And there is a storyline in regards to the Black mm -hmm. Panthers. Um, it, I love the Chicago Seven, and this is specifically about um, well, really the um, the assassination mm -hmm. of Fred Hampton. Yeah, the Chicago, the trial of the Chicago <laughs> Seven kind of kind of did a bad service by just saying by making that and Bobby Seale off to the side. Yeah, it's a weird I call it a very bizarre intersection. Yeah. Of events. Because, you know, I wanted more of the Bobby Seal story, mm -hmm. frankly, when watching. Um, and I know it really wasn't 
you know, about mm-hmm. him. He was kind of dragged into it. But I found that part of the story the more interesting part, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. Um, but um, I, I was able to catch this on. And there's also an interesting thing, thing here because uh, good old, good old J. Edgar Hoover and his um, his goon <laughs> squad, essentially, they keep on popping up in the Academy Awards because uh, you'll also see them popping up in the People versus uh, the U.S. versus uh, mm-hmm. Billy Holiday. Am I title right? Yeah, I think the United States versus Billy Holiday. Not not that the United States matters much in that movie, even though it is the antagonistic force. So, right. (laughs) But um, you know, this is, and the reason why I say that is in both movies, you have essentially, you have a uh, you have a black man doing the dirty work of the feds. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's exactly what happens in this story. And it, it's, I think this is, especially compared to Panther that came out in the nineties. I think this is a fantastic mm-hmm. film, a real amazing film that, you know, and Jesse Plemons is in it. And whenever Jesse Plemons also shows up, he's a supporting character, but he's amazing. But it's really Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, I I have yet to see the film myself, although I do think the 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 narrative around category fraud is very interesting to read about this year, considering, um, well, not just considering the movie, I mean, obviously, but like, again, we we, we, I know we talked earlier about the, 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 the problem with defaulting leading performances by 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 uh, black, brown, and indigenous actors to supporting intensely. Like, right. I think that double domination is a sign that says there's still work to be done in the Academy. When you say double domination, explain, well, explain uh, what you mean a little bit more. Daniel Kalua and Lakeith um, Stanfield are both nominated for Best Supporting yeah. Actor. Right. Oh, I see what you mean. So it's like, and and there's a, and maybe doubling down on that recognition there, because sometimes, even though this doesn't happen as frequently, there used to be a thing where you could tell a best picture, something was going to win best picture based on which of the supporting actor categories could um, get recognition. You know, like Celeste Holm, yes. for example, one was the only actor to win for Gentleman's Agreement, and that won Best Picture. So, this is why you're on the podcast. This is why that knowledge, baby. Well, <laughs> that is a classic Hollywood. Well, and, and even then, like even the most recent <laughs> examples of um, name, damn it. I know, I know this person's name. It's just blanking me at the. Oh, Mahershala Ali, um, Moonlight and yes. Green Book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a tale of two. Yeah, very one different one movies. that's once 
I think is an authentic portrayal of black life in America. And the other one is what white people prefer the portrayal of black life in America yes. to be. <laughs> and I haven't, and I haven't seen uh, green book, mind you. Um, I, I like, and I grew up with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So I can honestly tell you, like I, my attracted, my, attraction to Vigo Mortensen like dropped as soon as I saw the trailer for, for Green Book. I'm just like, eh, no, sorry, Aragorn, bye-bye. Like, I know, you gotta compartmentalize it though, because he's still the king. He's still Lord of the Rings. You know, they, they make these missteps. I always think this too. I think, you know, these actors are brought into these movies and told one thing. You don't know what happens at that editing room yeah. floor either and um, yeah I, I mean it, yeah. I, sorry I mean it would be it would be a amazing coup if this one I think this this could this would be one hell of a surprise mm -hmm. um I don't think it's gonna win um my my soul tells me it's not gonna win I would be thrilled if it did I think it's Still too well, controversial. And, and, and producers, know? because their their mind is on the money, are more likely to be more conservative in their choices than the actors who are supposedly known to be a little bit more liberal. So, like something might happen in the acting category, but not happen in the 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 studio exec category, which is which is essentially what Best right. Picture is. You know. Um, this um, this cast is fantastic, though. Um, and I got to tell you, whenever white boy Jesse Plemons shows up as a villain, I'm like, oh, he's going to make me hate my race oh. so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, like... He, he's not this... He's a great... He's, he's this great mm -hmm. antagonist. Um, especially for the Bill mm -hmm. O'Neill character um, played by Keith. And um, it's a little, it's what uh, Garrett Hedlund wish he, wished he could have done, I would say, in the United States um, as, Ansel, as Anseling Mirror, the United States versus Billy Holiday. So it's it's that type of similar antagonistic effect. Okay. Well, yeah. But done much yeah we'll we'll see i mean again like it'll depend it'll depend i mean yes it's controversial for to the producers but they might like they might feel guilt tripped because of this year and for not recognizing the glory that is selma and say we'll give this one right. something so that you'll be off our ass you know yeah in and again, that's a whole other story. I mean, we love the Oscars, but I just want to see so many of these actors yeah. in more and more films at the end of the day. So many more of these, uh, you know, marginalized and minority actors that are yeah. truly amazing. Um, them more recognized, and I, I, I'm, I'm more drawn to those types of film. Now, when we move into... <laughs> Best director. This won't take no, that long. because it's going to be Chloe Zhao. Um, I mean, we got David Fincher for Mank. We got Lee Isaac Young for Minari. 
We got Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Um, there's there's a line in Nomadland which I just love. They one of the characters says that says, um, "I didn't want my sailboat um, to be in my driveway when I died because her whole." I just had to, I just had to say it out loud because um, this nomad, her whole reason for living her life on the road is because she worked with someone who, before they could even retire, had bought a sailboat, and the whole intention was to get on that sailboat when they oh. retired, and he died ten days before. And I'm like, that is the theme of this movie. Um, now, are the other two? is the surprise with Emerald Fennel mm -hmm. in Promising Young Woman. Uh, Emerald Fennel, also known, um, she's an actress as well. She played uh, yep. Camilla Parker Bowles. I just finished the season, this uh, this last season, the other day. Uh, actually, okay, consider this gauche, but I watched the last episode of The Crown the day Prince Philip died. <laughs> It's not gauche. I, I think it's a little. I mean, you kind of did it just. In, I guess. Well, yeah, because he has that way, beautiful right? speech at the <laughs> end about um, who the, who were who you're really supposed to be um, uh, focused on as a royal. That. It's the speech that they give. It's the speech that the yeah. handlers give him. Well, and. Like, and what's surprising about that Which last is... episode, because I mean, honestly, I don't, this could be progress on my end, but I don't hate Camilla anymore. I just hate Charles more, you know, because Charles just used oh, them both it's... and Camilla is still alive to say so. But like, whatever that is, is whatever that is. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, and honestly, Emerald Fennel's portrayal of Camilla. Makes oh yeah, I mean, more. particularly that insight about the fairy tale. Like, I'm just like, like yeah. I love how Peter Morgan just put in what people are thinking into the characters that are at the best dramatic moment to say them, and it's just thinking, yeah, Camilla isn't going to take any bull from you anymore. Like, that was so wonderful because i mean not to say that she was entrapped by charles it's just that like emerald's delivery was just so perfect and there was a lot of um i've read a lot about now you know promising young woman wasn't nominated for best movie but the collaboration emerald had with especially carrie mulligan in the creation of this story was was mm -hmm. pretty intense and um given the time given the day um everything that's going on mm -hmm. in this world the climate you know she would be the that would be the big surprise of her getting it i don't think she's going to get it but i think she's going to have a lot more opportunities out of this, but this is her first, I believe this is her first time directing mm -hmm. this level of a movie um, from what I've read. Um, the other director is Thomas Vinterberg. He's Danish. Um, he also did The Hunt and he's uh, he's nominated for another round, 
with uh, Mads Mikkelsen, mm -hmm. that Danish um, actor, which I can't tell you anything about it except that I know it's about longtime friends and they're drinking a lot. So the, bu the buddy movie the producers <laughs> love seeing and always want to throw a nod to that says, yes, we went to a fraternity. <laughs> I do love, I do love a Mads Mikkelsen though. I do. Um, and I, if you ever have the opportunity to see the movie, the hunt, um, it's, it's quite good. It's, it's harrowing. It's, it's really good, but Mads is in it. And, um, it was directed by this, by this man, but the big, you know, the big takeaway with best director, of course, is you have two mm -hmm. women nominated for the first time. And there's a very good chance that one of them, and I think we're both in agreement that maybe that she's going to be taking it away this year. Um, she'll be joining. If she wins, she'll be joining. Um, uh, why Catherine can I never Bigelow. remember her name? This is horrible. Yeah. Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow. And I know that there are other. Well, there, there was, other there was I forget her name, but she was nominated <laughs> in the early seventies for a foreign film, but I'm totally blanking on it. I, I feel like I'm pitching this unintentionally and without permission of the the the, the YouTube channel, but uh, be kind rewind. That's excellent analyses of this yeah. stuff. So like it's um she has a good take on on uh on things, particularly uh women directors, because the what I remember most about Catherine Bigelow's win was yeah, Barbara Streisand presenting the Oscar when she wasn't nominated for friggin' Yentl, <laughs> which was to me the, the most qualified right. movie of 1983 that deserved a best director nomination. She wasn't nominated for, um, which was controversial at the time. Um, oh yeah, and, and it was interesting because I think Billy Crystal had a really kick-ass joke about that. You know, every sweeping every other category but best director. So, like, who do you expect directed this movie? <laughs> the cast. Right. Um. So we are going. We are going to transition now into okay. best actor. Well, to right me, that's a shoe win. But feel free to list. Who they are i'm sorry i'm stealing your spotlight oh. our hearing is deteriorating rapidly we'll come back till then lou we just keep going okay no lou no let's play them all and see what it's like okay i'm gonna be like a click track you can play to me Everything all right? Who are you? I say it's me, Paul. Who? I live here. What is this nonsense? Huh? It's me. Ah, that's you. Your father seemed a bit confused. Something wrong? Where's Anne? Sorry? 
Ma'am, where is she? I'm here. What's the matter, Dad? Strange things going on around us. Don't worry. Everything will sort itself out. Now, along comes Nemesis. That's Greek for any guy in a black hat. Nemesis runs for government, and he's sure to win. Why? Because he's exactly what our Don used to be. An idealist, you get it? And not only that, Nemesis is the same guy who once predicted that our coyote would one day preside over a socialist revolution. Hi. Hi. So um, bringing us into this, those are some clips from some of the best actors nominated this year. And we're starting off with Riz Ahmed in Sound of Metal. Um, I don't think a lot of people have seen this. It is on Amazon Prime. And uh, Riz is not only first actor of Pakistani descent to be nominated, but uh, first Muslim to be nominated, which is interesting. I have been a fan of Riz Ahmed's ever since I saw him in The Night Of. If you guys have not seen the night of it's on hbo it's a series I, I hate to be the faux expert again but like uh mahershala ali is muslim so he's so riz ahmed is technically the second muslim oh well, i read that wrong though thank you now this is why you're here i had i had incorrect information but he is the first actor of Pakistani descent. Oh, definitely. We're not taking anything away from that. That is all him. And um, this and is, we love him for. Yeah, and he is. This is a story of a drummer in a. It's essentially a two-person punk like rock band, punk rock band, and he begins losing his hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it happens. It, it's it's probably been happening slowly but surely because um, the damage and everything that's happening while they're playing while he's playing. Um, but in the movie, it happens very quickly. Mm -hmm. and, um, it's his process of uh, dealing with this, accepting this, um, not accepting this, and. Um, living in a deaf community while waiting for while waiting for what he is going to be his golden ticket which are cochlear implants. Mm -hmm. um he's also a recovering addict um, mm -hmm. in film um and music and him being a drummer is there's no other option for him with um he the loss of hearing and living that life without, you know, traditional sound of what he used to, um, it, him is not an option. So it's really him negotiating that world, mm -hmm. and coming to peace with some things. It's a great, um, it's a great portrayal. Um, I don't think he's going to take it, but. I'm glad people are recognizing him. Well, um, yeah, and the Academy hasn't paid attention to the deaf community. Right. Marley Matlin in 1987. <laughs> right. 
and it's a it's a really fascinating uh, look into this community. And they do a lot of interesting things in the movie with sound and perspective. That is, um, and when the the title of Sound of Metal is kind of a double title because he's in this kind of metal, hard metal band. Mm -hmm. um, but when he gets his cochlear implants, he does get those spoilers. Um, not the hearing that all he hears is this metal, this um, hear people talking and have you, but it's a metal ting to it. Mm -hmm. So it's very, um, dis um it, it's not, it's not distracting, but it's jarring for the audience and you feel it. You're like feeling it like that. Um, so I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great performance. Um, of course, we have who I think is obviously going to take it. Um, the late great Chadwick Boseman mm -hmm. in my rank black bottom, based on August Wilson play. Mm -hmm. um, on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. How do you feel about? I mean, Chadwick in this role. Well, okay. So before you, before you called on me for this podcast, I did watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom because I'm a huge Viola Davis stan. Yes. And um, I I hate saying this, but that was my first Chadwick Boseman movie. What? I know. I, I, I'm not all, I'm not always on. And, <laughs> and even when I'm on, I'm watching a DVD from the, from whatever decade I'm in the mood for. So, right. But I can honestly say the reason why he's going to get that Oscar is because of that scene where he's talking about death. Oh. I was bawling my eyes out. That was I. And I was just thinking, God, well, I was thinking, why do the good die young? And second of all, like, if, if we're going to be better about giving flowers while they're here, and Chadwick's gonna get his one after the fact. Like, let that performance be a reason why you need we need to recognize that talent doesn't have a color. Absolutely. And that the next whoever is next nominated, because there's never been there's not even been an uh, an actor a black actor who's one won a posthumous honor before in the industry ever. And Chadwick is lining up to be that person. And while there's something that could be said for, for you know, um, for capitalizing off of black trauma there at the same time, like I'm under the impression that Chadwick has never given a bad performance and that even if he was even if he was literally dying and de and delivering it professionally with this movie, like if he was alive, I would give it to him. Well, yeah, and he's played, um, you know, <laughs> he's played some iconic roles um, prior to this, and you know, he's played James Brown in Get On Up. Mm -hmm. He's played 
Um, Jackie Robinson Jack in 42. 42. He, he's, I, and he did the blockbuster. Mm -hmm. He was a Marvel the black, you know, he is Black Panther. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and why I'm pissed at Disney Plus is because they took both of those movies from my Netflix queue. I'm sorry. So, I, but that that's <laughs> I'm not gonna blame him. It's not his fault. It is it is the studio's fault. <laughs> but, exactly. But, I think the yeah. I think um and George C. Wolf, who directed this. I thought did a really brilliant job because the Levy character that Chadwick Boseman plays is so complex mm -hmm. compared to um, the entire ensemble is fantastic, but he's, you know, he's pitted up against these other musicians who are older, mm -hmm. all, all older than from 25 years on, uh, on up compared mm -hmm. to this. Yeah, Glenn, you know, Glenn Turman delivered too, by the way. Like, he was fucking awesome. Coleman, Coleman Santiago, again, yes. a great actor. Um, I was just absolutely blown away. And it is a heartbreaking, a truly heartbreaking role mm -hmm. uh, that's filled with joy and he's filled with joy and bravado and naivete and um, ego. And hate and tragedy. He's it does he, this role has it all. I'm like, there's everybody else can go home. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, that's the thing. I love Riz in Sound of Metal, but I think anyone else who gets this is gonna be like, I can't take this. Mm -hmm. Because if Chadwick was standing right here right now, I could I'd be giving it to him. Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought the strongest contender, and this is a very weak if, would have been Anthony Hopkins for The Father, just because what I saw in that trailer, like, like, just brought, like, show me, yeah, show me new dimensions. But at the same time, I'm just thinking, Chad, Chadwick has it. There's no question that he does. He wouldn't be racking them up right now if he did um, if if that wasn't a sure thing you know Agreed. i think it's i think it's progress that hollywood recognizes him this way right now and saying that he 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 his life mattered to to people and to the industry and we need to recognize that i mean it was only beginning i mean so young it's just heartbreaking um yeah camper takes said, the best of us yeah i mean we have anthony hopkins in the father another you know this is the second one that is based on a play just like ma Rainey's black bottom again i've talked about that it's a powerful performance it's not a performance that they just gave that they're just nominating him because he's anthony hopkins i think he wears a lot of different hats in this mm -hmm. and um very vulnerable. Gary Oldman and Mank feel like we've seen him do this. I don't, I know he's great. I know he's capable. This is not, I will be very angry at the Academy Award, at the Academy. I mean, the, the, and, you know, the thing with Mank is that it's such a fan service that it doesn't even deliver as a movie. 
It's just, oh, you know this. Oh, you know this. Oh, you know this. Oh, here's what actually happened. But hey, you still know this, you know? And it's just like, I need more, you know? They can Again, yeah, you're right. They can do better. And then we uh, rounded out with Stephen Young in Minari. And um, <clears throat> I don't think he's going to get it <laughs> again. Um, but I'm glad he is being recognized. And I'm glad there's life after The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. He did, a, you know, he did a couple movies, a couple independent movies after that. But I'm like, man, I hope this is this yeah. after, you know, this after doesn't fall. To, uh, where are they now? So, sorry, I was just um, putting the aluminum foil on the lasagna. <laughs> oh no worries. Um, so I mean, yeah, I, I will say this. I know we we were kidding at this earlier about how the Oscars love people who go who present against type or present something that they didn't do before. So if the Academy is recognizing that this actor is capable of doing something after Walking Dead, then that's probably yeah. why they're like, yeah, this one's someone we should see and pay attention to. Right, and he's and he's you know. He is a Korean, you know, he's a Korean actor and he's speaking Korean in it, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's because you're used to, if, if people are familiar with The Walking Dead. Yeah. And we're introduced to his Glenn character in The Walking Dead. He's just this, you know, American born kid, <laughs> you know. With that used to be a pizza delivery guy stuck in this situation and surviving, mm -hmm. so it's a very different, you know, departure. You know, I'm sure this was always in his arsenal, um, and I'm I'm glad we're seeing him. But yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's going to Chadwick. Um, I think they, and I don't think it's out of. I don't think it's out of a post-mortem. It is not a situation and it always happens that somebody passes on and they're nominated. Mm -hmm. Like Heath Ledger yeah. and um, Peter Finch from Network. Right. You know, and sometimes it's like, uh, I don't know if they deserve it, but you're, you're tied up with the sentimentality of it and the bereavement of them passing I think this so transcends it. Um, it's such a knockout performance mm -hmm. and it encapsulates in my mind, I mean, everything that he could, you know, he does everything in this, mm -hmm. every range, he hits every emotion. I, I, I don't know what else you want from a best actor performance. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when we come back, we're looking at the ladies in Best Actress. Oh, I know we're getting deep, deep, deep into this Oscar madness, but I'm glad you stuck around for this week's Ask Persephone. And the question is all around concept albums. We're going to go a little musical this week. 
Hi, Persephone, longtime listener and first time caller. Uh, I love your show. I was wondering, are there any albums that you recommend I check out that might be front to back, just a full concept album or something that will take me on a real journey? I love musicals, but um, I'm looking for more of a rock album or something I might not know about on my own, but that you recommend I check out. Um, I love a long album that I can listen to on my commute to work. So any recommendations would brighten my my commute. Thank you very much. Oh, this is Devin. Bye. Thank you, Devin Turchin. And for anyone who sees Devin or talks to Devin this week, it is his birthday on the 22nd. So happy birthday, Devin. I'll be thinking of you and hopefully seeing you. But you're really putting me through my paces this week. I am a lover of music, obviously, but I am by far the expert in concept albums. I will say that growing up, thankfully, because I had two older brothers and there was a lot of music going on in the house, I was early on introduced to, you know, Tommy by The Who from 1969 and Jesus Christ Superstar from the one and only Andrew Lloyd Webber because it did begin as a concept album before it was turned into a musical. Tommy also was eventually turned into a musical in the 90s. But I would say those two were some of the most influential ones of me growing up. You know, we all know the classics. We know the... um, the fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, Dark Side of the Moon. These are all wonderful, Devin, if you're looking into something classic, classic, what the experts um, consider true concept albums, you know, like Johnny Cash. um, I think it's called The Rambler. There's a Willie Nelson one in there. But... I've tried to expand the idea. Um, I personally think one of the best ones, it is very mid-90s, you know, 1995, Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. It's, you know, when people bought CDs, it was released in two CDs and one was day and one was night. And Billy Corgan to this day says, it is not a concept album. I think he's full of shit. Um, also one of my favorites, even though it's very, very dark, we're still in the nineties here is 1994's, um, downward spiral by nine inch nails. And it is very dark. It might be a tough one to listen to if you're, (laughs) if you're needing more of a happy story, um, it is not filled with much happiness, but it is beautifully produced and arranged and Probably one of the more interesting facts was he created this album when he was living in the home, um, the very famous home on Cielo Drive where Sharon Sharon Tate, her house guests, and um, the landscaper 
William Parent were all murdered in 1969. Very dark. Apparently, Trent Reznor, the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails, or the creator of Nine Inch Nails, contended that the best acoustics were in that house. I doubt that. But I think it was a gimmick. Um, moving on to your 2000s. I'm a huge fan of The Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Um, one of the more theatrical groups out there. It's definitely a concept album. It's definitely telling a story. I think it's pretty fantastic. Um, a little harder, but with melody and whatnot. Something a little bit odder that you might not be thinking of. Um, I'm a fan of Elvis Costello. He worked with the Brodsky Quartet on the Juliet Letters. So it's a good fusion of uh, rock, melody, and classical music. Um, of course, no one's going to forget uh, Beyonce's Lemonade, um, probably one of the more famous concept albums that does not get enough credit that came out a few years ago. Her love letter to black women. There is... I cannot imagine a more perfect album than Lemonade, to be honest. Um, I would also suggest a few albums by Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet has made, to date, I believe, three different concept albums. A lot of them focusing on an android who comes to Earth trying to look for love. Um, the first one, Metropolis, from 2007. Uh, 2010's The Arch Android, 2013's The Electric Lady, and I may be missing one. All wonderful. I highly suggest uh, Radiohead's OK Computer or Kid A. The lead singer, Tom York, does not claim these to be concept albums. I think he just doesn't really want them to be labeled as anything, but they are definitely around big concepts with OK Computer being, honestly, our relationship with technology. Humanity's destructive relationship with technology is one of the themes. Um, but Kid A, anxiety, distrust, um, lack of love a lot of different concepts which sounds like just a regular album but there's definitely a theme um, I would also throw in there Tom York and this is a personal favorite of mine he composed and created the music for Suspiria the latest um, movie version of Suspiria by Luca Guadagnino and if you have seen this really, really um, fantastic retelling of this story, uh, one of the first things that really strikes you is the music. It's very different from the original campy but fantastic music uh, from the original Suspiria that was done by Goblin. This is um, dark terrifying beautiful um there's some just classical score pieces in there and then there are a few songs with his lyrics um 
there is one song that sounds nothing but kind of screeching. I forget what it is called, but you will want to pass that over, perhaps. Or maybe I am crazy loving this album as much as I do, but I truly, truly do adore it. Um, One of my favorites. I own it on vinyl. And... Um, one of my last recommendations is a little odd. If you have not heard of this indie band, it's an indie rock darling, uh, the, the Decemberists. I was turned on by them. I went to a concert at the Beachland in Cleveland years ago when they were getting ready to release, or maybe they had just released their album Picaresque, which was really, um, devoted to like nautical themes if anything and in, in, intrigue and espionage their album of hazards of love from 2009 is very beautiful and great and it borrows on a lot of different music stylings but it definitely tells a story so if you're looking for something that tells a story that is magical and intriguing and sad and beautiful all wrapped up in one and puzzling i think this is the one for you the (laughs) concept of this album is a woman falls in love with a shape-shifting deer and um the adventures that ensue from that and a widower widower murders her own children so there is some darkness in this as well um but i think it's pretty fantastic if you can get your hands also on the musical Hades Town is well it was on Broadway but prior to prior to it um going prior to it being on Broadway there was a version of it that was very folk based um um, that was produced, but that was um, done by Anise Mitchell. I'm saying her name probably incorrect. A N A I S. Um, but it is most of the music is the um, music that is used in the musical, if not all of it. And it's really beautiful. And it's a little bit different to listen to this concept album. Um, by her Um, and she uses different artists including Andy DeFranco as Persephone because the story of Hadestown is um, it follows uh, it's a variation of the ancient Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice where Orpheus is going on a quest to rescue his wife Eurydice from the underworld and it's really pretty um it is it, it's obviously when it's been turned into this musical it's at the highest level of like broadway gleam so it's kind of exciting to be able to listen to this in the concept level pre-broadway version so i think you would really enjoy that so i would say my top two picks are the 2010 Town concept al- album by Anise Mitchell and 
the 2009 Decemberists Hazards of Love. And uh, don't also forget about uh, Janelle Monet's couple of her concept albums in there, but I'm giving you my two top picks, so take that where you will. And I hope you could find something in there. Thank you so much for the question. And that will finish us up for this episode of Pop Culture Persephone. Do not forget to go on to the contributors page to learn more about Tim Collinwood. And also go on the Pop Culture Persephone website to learn more information about this episode and find out more information about past episodes. Again, this is episode one of three this week. It's a lot of episodes this week, but it's a big primer for Sunday's Academy Awards. That is partially kind of live. It's not a Zoom call. That's all we need to know. All right, popsters, keep it popping, and I'll talk to you soon.